And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow in prayer. God, you are the God of grace. You have done so much in my life. Just the fact that I can bow before you is an act of your grace. So I pray that tonight, as I preach, as others listen, we would all be reminded of you, of who you are, of the great grace that you have shown us, and be stirred to love you more, to serve you more. I pray that you would give me clarity in speech. I pray that you would let your word go forth through me to minister in those who hear. God, you deserve our best effort. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a person who loves animals. I love to play with animals, to pet animals, to probably touch animals that I shouldn't touch, just to do all kinds of stuff with animals. So let's imagine just a situation, completely hypothetical. I'm driving down the road, and I see up ahead something on the side of the road. It looks, looks like a raccoon. Well, I love raccoons. We used to have them around our house all the time. So I think, man, I want a raccoon for a pet. I've heard they're really smart. They make good pets, all kinds of stuff. I get up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's right there on the side of the road. So I, I go over and I, I stop a little bit in front of it and I walk back to it and it's completely smushed. And just this dead raccoon hit by a car, gone. No more raccoon, basically. And I look at it and I think, man, this looks like a great pet. I'll take this home with me. So I grab it and I take it back home. Then I, I give it a little cage and it hasn't fought back at all. It hasn't bit me. I don't even need to be careful, right? Then I give it some food and some water because I know animals need that. But it never eats the food and it never drinks the water. Well, I give it to some stuff to play with. Like raccoons like shiny stuff, but it never does anything with that either. Well, after a few days, it starts to stink a little bit. And we all know why it's not doing something with that. It's because it's dead. When something is dead, there's no response, there's no life. It's not going to do anything. No matter how many shiny things I give a roadkill raccoon, it's not going to do something with it. Death is very total. But death is a state that all of us believers were once in. And that's what Paul's talking about here. 
So even though we know that death is total, we see in this passage God and how he worked and his grace in our lives to give us life. So verse 1 of chapter 2. And you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. If you're using King James or New King James, those three words, he made alive, are italicized. And that's because they're actually not there. The, the translators put them in there to try to clarify what he's saying. That happens sometimes. They say, this isn't unclear if we do a strict translation, it's not going to come across what he's really trying to say. And we need a subject for the sentence. So they put, he made alive in there. They get that from farther down in the passage. Sorry, spoilers. But as we see this in verse 1, Paul doesn't mention life yet. In verse 1, all he's talking about is death. He says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This obviously is spiritual death. It's not referring to physical death. He's not preaching to a bunch of zombies. He's preaching to people who were once spiritually dead. They were separated from God. They were under condemnation. And he's going to describe in these next few passages what he just, in these next few verses, what he just said. He says, you are dead. I'm going to demonstrate how dead you are or how dead you were. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. We walked in our sins. Walking has the idea of a lifestyle. It's not something that's every once in a while. You don't say, I went for a walk today because I took five steps. You say, I went for a walk today because you actually walked continually for more than five steps. And that's the idea here. It's not just something for a little bit. It's not just every once in a while. It's a lifestyle. It's a continual action. Something pervading his lifestyle of walking in sin, in trespasses. And he says it's according to the course of the world. That's the way the world walks. That's the way that the world around us lives. That's their lifestyle, is trespasses. It's sins. And then he says, according to the prince of the power of the air. This is referring to Satan. Right? He, these people that he's writing to were dead according to Satan, according to how he lived. They walked according to how Satan walks. What kind of flattering description is that? Right? The father of lies, the devil, that serpent of old. He's saying you walked in that same pattern. You lived that same way, or rather you were dead, that same way as Satan, following after him, doing what he's doing. And it says the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, who's at work in those who are unsaved now. In verse 3, again, among whom also, among these sons of disobedience, among the ones who are living in disobedience, who are characterized by it, we all, not some of us, not some of you, but we all, every single one of us, conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Right? Again, he's saying it's a lifestyle. It's conducting yourself. It's living that way. Conducting yourself in a certain way isn't once, maybe twice, probably on a bad day, three times. 
It's, it's continual. It's that action that just keeps going. And that conducting yourself was in the lust of the flesh, which he then describes with two phrases. It's the desires of the flesh and of the mind that we were fulfilling. The desires of the flesh are more of the urges to sin that you get. Like someone does something you don't like and you have this rage welling up inside of you that you then act on. It's just an urge. You weren't sitting there thinking through, hmm, should I get mad at this? Yeah, I, I think this is something to get mad at. No, it's, it's a passion that rises up. That's a desire of the flesh. And he's saying, you lived in that. So the Ephesian believers then could say, oh yeah, but, you know, that was just one section. We didn't do the other sins, like the more logical thought through sins, you know. Well, Paul addresses that too. You fulfilled the desires of the mind. Anything they could think about and think, oh, I want this. I want to act on this. I want to do this. I want to go here. Any of that sin in their mind, any of those urges, those passions, they fulfilled them. They acted on them. They lived in them. We lived in them. Paul is just hammering these Ephesian believers and really us with descriptions of how lost we were, of how rebellious we were, of how much we wanted to stay in our rebellious state, of how dead we were. It's just, really, a lot of descriptions. And he keeps going. He says, And we were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. Being a child of something in Scripture often means you are under that, or you have the characteristics of that. Like, Jesus is the Son of Man. That doesn't mean he's not a man. It means he is a man. The sons or children of wrath are under wrath. Every single one of us was under the just wrath of God. Every single one of us had that just punishment bearing down on us. And that's what Paul's saying. You lived this way. You walked in rebellion. You walked in death. And you were under wrath. There's no hope. There's nothing I can do. I'm like that dead raccoon. No matter how many shiny things you put in front of me, I'm not going to act on it. I'm just done. There's nothing, literally nothing that I could do. And that's where we get to verse 4. This whole contrast between the first three verses and then the first two words of verse 4 is probably one of my favorites in Scripture. He's just piling upon descriptions of how lost, how hopeless, how destitute we are, how dead we are. And then verse 4, he says, But God... Right. We were dead, but God. We were fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, but God. We were walking according to Satan, but God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. Right. That's the contrast here. It's us and God. And the picture he paints for us is pretty bleak. But then he paints the picture of God. And what a remarkable picture it is. But God who is rich in mercy. Think about what it means to be rich. Think of a billionaire. You know, he can go out and buy whatever cars on the market and probably the whole market. And he, that's just pocket change. He still has billions left over to spend. No matter how many gumballs he buys, he's not going to run out of money. 
Well, God is rich in mercy. No matter how much mercy we need, no matter how much mercy he keeps putting on our accounts, he's still got so much left over, he's not even touching his pocket change yet. That's just the penny he found on the sidewalk. Because he is so rich in mercy. And then he says, because of his great love with which he loved us. There's two things about his love. It's great and it has a direction. And that direction is us. Right? God's love is vast. It's incredible. It's enormous. And it's towards us. His love isn't just this general ooey-gooey feeling. But it's specific. God loved and loves the rebellious, dead sinners. And it's because of that love, that's what he says in verse 4, it's because of that love that he made us alive. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I was dead and you were dead in trespasses, in sin, in rebellion, throwing it all in the face of God, saying, I don't want you. And God loved us enough to make us alive. That's not like a, a doctor who performs a surgery. That's something we can't even come up with a picture for that we've seen. Right? It'd be like if that raccoon that I put in my, this is hypothetical, but that I put in my room, it's like if it came back to life. It's not going to do that. We'd all look at that and say, that's absurd. That's crazy. But that's what the love of God did. That's what God did because of that love. And he did that in my life. And he did that in your life if you're a believer. And he made us alive together with Christ. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose again. And Christ ascended to heaven. And we were dead but we can be raised up with Christ. Paul says in Corinthians, if Jesus did not rise again, there's no hope for us. But I'll give you a secret. I'll tell you a secret. He did rise again. And we live with him. We live, we are made alive together with Christ. Notice again, he says he made us alive. It's not he helped us become alive. It doesn't say he gave us a means to become alive. It says he made us alive. God's the one doing the work. In verse 5, by grace you have been saved. We're familiar probably with verses 8 and 9 talking about for by grace you have been saved. But Paul introduces that idea here. He really wants us to get this. He's saying, God made you alive even when you were dead and it's by his grace. It's a gift. It's something we don't deserve. Then verse 6, and he raised us up together, and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I have a question. I'm not currently seated in, seated in heaven, at least not as far as I can tell. If this is heaven, it's not what I expected. But does that mean I'm not saved? Because Paul clearly says he made us sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And I know Christ ascended. Why am I still here? Well, maybe here's a picture that might help a little bit. We all are familiar with like the Midwestern goodbye. You say, 
all right, I'm going to go now, and then you talk for another three hours. Like, okay, it's actually time for me to head out, which means you're down to two hours left. Okay, I'm really leaving now. You've still got another hour. Okay, we're all familiar with that type of goodbye. Well, my grandmother does the same thing, but she does something else, too. When she's really, actually going to walk out the door, nothing else, she throws up her hands and says, I'm gone. So she'll tell you, I'm going to leave and then talk for half an hour. But when she throws up her hands and says, I'm gone, she's actually walking out the door. And you know that for fact. Now, she's still there. She's not actually gone. But she is so sure she's walking out the door that she states it as if she already did. Right? My grandma is so sure she's going to leave that she says she's already gone. And that's what Paul's doing here. He is so confident in this future hope, in this future reality, because he knows of the life God has given him, and he knows the God who gave him life, that he can state it as something that already happened. Right? He knows he will be raised together. He knows he will be made to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And he's so confident on that, that he's no doubt. This already happened. That's how sure it is. And why did, why did this happen? Why did God do this? Why did God take some dirty, rotten sinner like me and give me life? Well, it's because of his great love. But verse 7, there's another purpose. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the time to come, in eternity, he's going to be showing us the riches of his grace. And we will never lose something to sing about. I like the last verse of Amazing Grace. After 10,000 years, we have no less time, no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Right? When we're in heaven, in the ages to come, we will be seeing the exceeding riches of God's grace more clearly than we can see it now. And we will be praising it and praising it and praising it and never running out of grace to praise. Because his grace is rich and it's exceeding rich. It's rich and then rich again. It's rich and rich a little bit more. It's like you take all the wealthiest people in the world, you combine them together, and then you add all the rest of the money and double it. And then add some more. Right? It's exceeding rich. There's just so much of it. And Paul's trying to show us that with these few short verses. He's trying to impress on us just the riches of that grace. Just how marvelous that grace is. He's trying to just give us a glimpse of the greatness of this God whom we are serving as we see his grace in salvation. And then we get to verses 8, 9, and 10, which we've already, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. He's still describing in here why we praise God's grace. In these last three verses, it's not a change of topic. Okay, I was talking about this, now I'm talking about by grace you've been saved through faith, and then we get to what we already know. He's just continuing on. It's still one thought. Right? God's grace is amazing. We will be praising it in eternity because it is exceeding rich. For by grace, you have been saved. Think about, for a minute, what it would take to bring someone back to life. 
What a miracle that would be. Now think about the fact that God already did it to you. What amazing grace. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And then Paul adds a disclaimer. Not of yourselves. It's not you. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we did even the tiniest sliver of work, we could boast. I'm from up north in Michigan, so I've grown up with a lot of snow. And one of my favorite things to do with that snow growing up was to build snow forts. Right? At first, me building a snow fort was mostly my dad building a snow fort and me playing with it. But then as I got older, I started to be the one actually crafting them. And then I got to a point where I didn't want help. Right? I was going to build that snow fort. I didn't want anyone to shovel even a scoop of snow. Because then it wouldn't be my fort anymore. It would be our fort. And I knew that. So someone, say my dad would come over with a snowblower, say, hey, you can move a lot more snow if I did this. Do you want me to do it for you? I'd say, no, 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 it's all right. I got this. I can shovel it. Because I didn't want him to have any credit. Even if he just did a little bit, just move some, I knew that it'd be dad and I's fort, not my fort. And I didn't want that. Well, that's just a tiny bit of work. But there's still credit. And that's what Paul's saying here, too. Even if God does absolutely everything except for that one tiny little bit, then we can still take credit because that one tiny little bit was done by me. And Paul says, you didn't do it. You can't take credit. He says, you want to give yourself some credit? You think you worked for it? Sorry, you didn't. But that just goes to show how great the grace of God is. Because I can't take any of the credit. I have to give the credit to somebody. And that somebody is God. Because he did all of it. 100% of the work of salvation was done by God. 100% of it. And I cannot boast. I can't take any credit. I try to sometimes. But really, I can't. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now a lot of us are quick to say, oh yeah, God gets all the credit for salvation. Uh-huh, I know that. I know these verses. But it's not of works. Mm-mm, not even slightly. But then we get to living out the Christian life. And that's when we start to try to take the credit. God gets all the work for saving me, or God gets all the credit for saving me. He did everything. But you know, I think I did a pretty good job teaching Sunday school this morning. Uh-huh, yep. Or, you know, I've been seeing some, some growth in my life recently. I've been working hard at it, reading my Bible, right? I'm doing the good job with that, and I'm seeing fruits in my life. I've been diligent in prayer. Every single day, I've been praying for five hours. And I've been, I've been just seeing the work of that in my life. We're quick to take the credit. But notice what Paul says. We're God's workmanship. And we were created by God, again. We were created in Christ Jesus and we were created for good works. So God, in his salvation, gave us new life that we could 
walk in it and live for him. But in that life, there's a goal. He wants us to do good works. He created us for good works. But these works still aren't my own. Because he says, God prepared them beforehand. God got these works ready. God orchestrated these events. God got my life to that point. God set up everything, and God accomplished everything. These good works aren't there. He doesn't say, which God prepared beforehand that we should work on them. He says that we should walk in them. God already set up the good works. As I live my life, I'm just walking in what God already did. God gave me the life, and then God gave me these good works, and then God let me walk through them. Not that my walking's a work, right? I still can't take any credit for that, because God's the one doing that too. The grace of God and the marvel at the grace of God doesn't stop at salvation. It continues throughout our entire lives in walking through this Christian life, even to glorification. When we go to heaven and when we sing his praises in eternity, it won't just be for that one moment where, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was four years old. Wow, that was such great grace. It will be for a lifetime of God working. And not just my lifetime, but all your lifetimes too. Because God's just as much at work in your life as he is in mine. God just as much takes the credit for everything. This truly is remarkable grace. I was dead. But God brought me to life. And then he gave me something to do. And let me walk through it. How amazing that is. Right? This grace of God is incredible. And we should be in awe at this. You should be sitting there saying, wow, what an amazing God we serve. But then don't just say, man, he's so good. All right, time for my week. All right, there should be a response. We should be moved to serve him. Notice verse 10, again, there's good works. We're to walk in them. That doesn't mean sit down and wait for God to drag you through them. Still get up. Serve. Look for things to do to serve God. If there's something you can do to help somebody out this week, help them out. If you can sacrifice a little bit of your time to do something for someone, then go do it. If you can take five minutes and go share the gospel with somebody, even just a random person in a restaurant. Go share the gospel with that person. That's really the next thing is, as we look at this, think about how dead you were, how hopeless and how lost you were, and think about the fact that that's everyone who has not received Christ. That's every single person who's not a believer. Every single individual who has not been saved, is dead in trespasses and sins, is walking according to the course of this world, is fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and is the child of wrath. That should be sobering, too. Because I was once there, 
but God showed his grace to me. So why would I not tell of that grace to someone else? Are you going to let, you know, a little fear that a conversation is going to be awkward or that you might get rejected stop you from telling a dead person about the God of grace? I would challenge you. Go out of here desiring to tell people about God because you know what he's done in your life. Evangelism doesn't flow out of some impersonal knowledge of, you know, I know there's a God, so I should tell people about it. It's personal. I was dead and God saved me, so I want to tell people of this God that saved me. I really hope you have a desire to do that. There's also a trust, a confidence that we can have in God. We can echo what Paul said in verse 6. He raised us up together. He made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. It hasn't happened yet, but I can be so sure of it that I can state it as a past reality. And that really should be confidence in our lives. Think of Colossians 3, setting your mind on things above. Of 1 Peter, looking towards the inheritance that God has given us that God has prepared for us. We should live confidence in God, assured that he's at work. He has good works prepared. He saved me. He's going to lead me through those, and he's going to glorify me. Right? Whatever the little nitty-gritty details of life are, they don't stop the fact that God is the God of grace, that he is faithful, that he's at work, that he's in control, that he's sanctifying you, that he's bringing his work to completion. Whatever the little fiddly details are, those little fiddly details can be really tough sometimes. But they're still under the control of the great God. I just really hope tonight that you were impressed with an awe of the grace of God 